0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk
1: 1080, and WTIC.com.
0: Welcome to Healthy Round, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's an honor to be here today. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, You know, in the world of radio, radio has gone through an evolution, and for those of you who listen to a lot of talk radio, um, you'll understand that. Um, but more and more, the people who are behind these microphones have lost sight of their responsibility. I, I have a tremendous responsibility here to really communicate with you and give you information to work with. And and too many people, in the name of trying to be entertaining, have just gone out there and really proposed a lot of lies. You know, this week, let me give you an example. This week, I was in Pueblo, Colorado with the professional bull riders, and I love being with them. I mean, listen, I'm an Italian from the Bronx. What do I know about cowboys, right? But I've learned so much working with these young people, men and women, and you know, their kind of slogan now, whether it be marketing or not, is be a cowboy. And what does it mean to be a cowboy? And when you get down to it, to be a cowboy is to be able to do something to help those who cannot help themselves. That's basically it. Policemen, firemen, soldiers, doctors, nurses. That's that's what it means to be a cowboy. And that's what's been explained to me. What's not being a cowboy is being a coward behind a microphone and inciting people to hate each other. And more and more, we're hearing racist, homophobic remarks coming from behind these microphones. And and I'm not talking about this station. I'm talking about across the board. It really came to roost when I was in Haiti. I learned a lot in Haiti. In Haiti, their radio stations, everyone listens to talk radio. That's all they listen to. No matter what vehicle you're in, wherever you are, they're listening to talk radio. Why? Because people call in and give their opinion. Now, those opinions are uncensored. You can use vulgarity. You could use whatever you want. And the talk show hosts use that to incite people. Perfect example. Someone calls into a talk radio show in Haiti and accuses... My good friend, Father Rick Frechette, at St. Luke Hospital and said, you know, at that hospital, what they're doing is stealing people's organs. So those bodies of the dead, the women who have died in childbirth and those babies, they're missing organs. So because some lunatic calls up to talk radio and says that, suddenly the federal police are at our door inspecting dead bodies. That's the importance people put in talk radio in a country like that. Another example, again, we have huge warehouses where we store food, food for the poor and to help other charities. Someone calls into the radio station and says, you know, in those warehouses, they have guns. They've been importing guns. Who shows up? Federal police. Okay. So I've gotten to look at the future and understand the responsibility of sitting behind this microphone because we have a lot of power to incite people. And what we really should be doing is trying to get people to work together as much as we can, and that's the purpose of this show. Actually, that's the purpose of Saturday on this station. There is not a Saturday that you can listen to these stations at WTIC and not learn something. Heck, I'm not a gardener, but, you know, I've learned more about gardening from those guys. So the idea is to get there to learn. And, you know, when you're hearing all that rhetoric and the hate speech, just turn it off. It's about time we just turn the off button. Now, one of the topics that's been particularly troublesome to me has been vaccination. Finally, we have a topic where it's bipartisan in Connecticut and people are going to come together, Democrats, Republicans. We understand that vaccines are probably the most important medical breakthrough to modern man. That's how important it is. And yet, yet we have people out there saying, no, we don't want to force people to be vaccinated. I, I, I agree. Don't force them to be vaccinated. But who is standing up for the children who can't be vaccinated? Those children who have illnesses that don't allow them to be vaccinated, why should they be put in an environment that does not meet the percentage for herd immunity? So if you don't want to be vaccinated, great. Homeschool. Go to some other private school where they allow you. But no one is speaking up for those children. And it's about time somebody did. It's about time somebody was a cowboy and stood up for those children. So I'm hoping because there are going to be a lot of squeaky wheels on Wednesday at the, at the state house, right? You know, my religious belief. I heard someone on the radio this week say their religious belief a religion is anything you believe it to be. Now that's a lie. And we also know there's no organized religion that's against vaccination. So their whole argument is based on a lie, and it leaves children at stake. Our most vulnerable population is at stake. So I'm asking our elected officials to start standing tall and be a cowboy. Get it together. It's about time. This day in medicine, February fifteenth, 1829, Silas Weir Mitchell was born. S. Weir Mitchell. Now, Dr. Mitchell was an American Civil War surgeon and a neurologist. He's one of the founders of modern neurology in the United States. And we know of him because his original work during the Civil War was in pain and pain management. He's the first person to describe causalgia, what many people know as reflex sympathetic dystrophy, that extreme pain people get in their extremities. He described it so accurately in 1865 that we still work off that that description today of this illness. He did tremendous work. At that point, he was seeing it because those who were shot, soldiers who were shot, he he theorized that it was an abnormal connection between motor and sensory nerves that caused this dystrophy. Uh, We have gone beyond that in terms of our research in it, but his descriptions are still used today. And he is one of the fathers of American neurology, S. Weir Mitchell, again, born February 15th, 1829. I've been looking forward to today's show because my guest in the studio is going to be Dr. Amre New. Dr. New is director of the Comprehensive Stroke Center at Hartford Hospital. He's part of the Iron Neuroscience Institute at Hartford Hospital. And we're going to learn today. We're going to learn about stroke and how to avoid stroke. Now we hear about hypertension, diabetes, but Dr. New's specialty in stroke is looking again at vulnerable populations, who? Pregnant women, okay, when they are at risk for stroke. He has really developed a specialty within a specialty. So we're gonna be chatting with him. As always, I'm ready to take your questions. is you have questions on stroke, or if you want to contact me at info at alessiemd The phone number here eight six zero five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk ten eighty. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it. It's my pleasure to have my guest, Dr. Amre New. Dr. New is director of the Comprehensive Stroke Center at Hartford Hospital. He is a neurologist specializing in stroke and uh, specifically in vascular neurology. Amre, welcome
2: to the show. Morning. Thank you for having me, Tony. Hey, let's talk a little bit
0: Um Let's just give people kind of a background into your education and, and training and how you got into the field, the subspecialty of stroke neurology.
2: Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a neurologist with subspecialty training in stroke. Um, so vascular neurology is is the, basically the discipline of understanding the blood supply to the brain and all the pathology or diseases that can occur because of a lack of blood supply or bleed or any other problem that's related to circulation in the brain. So I, the importance of this topic, I guess, is I don't think
0: anyone listening to this show doesn't know somebody who's had a stroke. Yeah. And the numbers are fairly staggering of strokes. Can you just go over some
2: of those statistics? The statistic is hasn't changed in years. In fact, every 40 seconds in the United States, a person has a stroke. Wow. Every 40 seconds, that's about 800,000 strokes a year, And if you look at that group of people who have a stroke, one in four of those folks had a stroke before. So 25% of strokes that happen aren't individuals who already had one. So it is truly a staggering statistic. What about the risk factors? Traditionally, 80% of stroke could be attributed to about seven or eight risk factors, high blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, obesity. Those are kind of the, the things that also give you heart attacks and other types of problems with your health, so... Well, interestingly, those are all controllable risk factors. Correct. So 80% of stroke is preventable because you can theoretically modify them. The non-modifiable risk factors, your age, your gender, you know, those types of things, your genetics, but those really don't contribute much as compared to the other risk factors.
0: I I find it interesting. We're in February, which is uh, Women's Health Month, I think, uh, when we think of heart attack in women. But, uh, you know, you see a lot of women with stroke. Oh, sure. Why are they, or are they, a more vulnerable population?
2: Yeah, in fact, I see more women uh, with stroke than men. Uh, six in ten deaths from stroke are 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 women. There's a couple of uh, good reasons. Uh, first one, uh, women outlive men, so just by nature of uh, by nature of, of, of older age and, and risk of you know having accumulating disease, you're more likely to see a stroke in a woman. But also, you know, women go through a lot from a hormonal perspective. Of course, uh, the childbearing age, those years. Put them at really high risk because of all the hormonal changes that uh, it, you know that can basically disrupt or or you know predispose you to having a stroke as compared to a man. And we've made headway, I guess. Hypertension's been a big issue, and
0: there have been a lot of fluctuations in the theories of what is really hypertension. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach that with a patient? What's acceptable and what's not acceptable?
2: Yeah, I mean, high blood pressure for, you know, someone who's in their 40s, you really want to be very aggressive with them because they might have had just been diagnosed with hypertension. They could have been a closet hypertensive for a few years, and you really want to keep them close to normal, 120 over 80. Somebody who's in their 70s or 80s who's been having high blood pressure for years, you know, 140 is probably a more reasonable one, uh, target for them. So we really have to put that in consideration.
0: So personalized medicine really plays a role in everything. I think that's what you're saying is that medicine is because we all say, well, this
2: is the number,
0: but that's not the
2: right number for everybody. Yeah. And Tony, I'm glad you brought that up because I believe the more we get more personalized care, the more we really get to understand every individual and what's unique about them, the more we can make a dent in the statistic.
0: Are we making a dent? I mean, you said at the outset, the numbers are about the same. And I'd like to feel that we're making people more aware and getting somewhere, are we?
2: So, yes and no. So, uh, stroke used to be the fourth leading cause of death in the United States, and I think it's now the fifth for the past few years. Um, so, less people die from a stroke, but that doesn't mean they don't get it. It just means that our healthcare is caught up, so that people can live longer with a disability. But from a from a risk factor, pers- you know, pers- perspective. Um, we really have not up until recently made a lot of changes. Like for example, when you go see your primary care doctor and they could risk stratify you for having a heart attack, they, they use different scores and things like that for stroke. You know, there's something called the Framingham stroke risk score. Sure. And, and that has several points, you know, do you smoke? How old are you? Et cetera. And that's been published, you know, since the, the nineties. Uh, so over, you know, 30 years ago or so. Um, and you can, you know, your 10 10-year risk of stroke can be calculated, but that's not really personalized. I mean, that really just gives you a ballpark estimate, um, which brings, I'm sure, it will bring us to the next part of the discussion, which is where my interest is, is really how can we, how can we approve upon that?
0: Okay, and, and we're going to get to that. Um, when we look at the the basics of stroke, we look at hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are we seeing more or less in each category
2: yeah so uh, we we see some shifts uh, over the years uh, typically ischemic strokes are more common so 80 85% and those are the ones maybe you yeah. could elaborate a little bit for the listeners though those are the those are the strokes that there's an interruption of in blood flow There's a clot or a plaque that happens and um you know somewhere in the bloodstream and then the, there's no blood flow going to the brain the hemorrhagic strokes are the complete opposite, where you have too much blood flow to the brain to a part where you start to bleed into the brain. It could be from an aneurysm or some other malformation in the vessel or just because of high blood pressure. Um, because of better medicines now with high blood pressure, if you look back data from the 60s and the 50s, there's 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 better control of high blood pressure, so there's less of that but also because of our diets and because of uh, Western civilization, you know, everything's high high cholesterol and high sugar and high fat. We're seeing a lot more of ischemic and atherosclerotic disease. So are if we're controlling blood pressure, are we able to control more of the
0: hemorrhagic strokes?
2: A little bit of both, yeah. Hemorrhagic strokes are primarily, you know, high blood pressure related, uh, if they're related to high blood pressure. The ischemic's high blood pressure does, you know, put a lot of wear and tear on the blood vessels and just makes the arteries much harder uh, and you got more plaque. So it's a little bit of both, Tony.
0: Before we go for a break, I I guess I want to get this question out of the way, and that is aspirin or no aspirin? People, um, (laughs) no, I mean, uh, so uh, people have been taking a baby aspirin. We've been, well, let's put it this way. Let's be honest. Doctors have been taking baby aspirin for a long time. It's the one thing we knew. When I finished training, we knew That helped you avoid heart attack and stroke. Sure. So most doctors, if you polled people at a meeting, they were all taking a baby aspirin.
2: Oh, yeah. Should we still be doing that? You know, earlier in the show, you said people behind the mic have a responsibility. Sure. So I'm going to be responsible here. This only reflects my opinion. Uh, You know, recently there was a big study that that came out out of of the UK uh, that was a population-based study. And it found that taking an aspirin a day keeps the doctor away didn't really pan out. Uh, so we're starting to see some folks who are saying, "Don't do it." Okay. Um, personally, for me, I think going back to personalization. There's probably a group of folks who you're probably better off taking a baby aspirin a day, and some that just because I would say no if you if you don't have some of the risk factors you might just put yourself at risk of bleeding. Okay. All right.
0: Game on to personalized medicine. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest Dr. Amre New. The phone numbers here 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're talking about stroke. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with Dr. Amray New. Dr. New is a neurologist, and we're talking about stroke and particularly stroke in uh, women and in pregnancy. But we've got a couple of questions. We have Louise on the line from New Britain. Louise, you had a question for Dr. New.
2: Yes, um, maybe I missed it. But how about speaking about women's risk factors? The
0: um, birth control pill yeah no that's great because you see one of the things I like about the questions are it kind of heads off the topics we were going to get to so let's talk about it Omri what about birth control pill in women and stroke risk
2: sure Louise that's a great question um, the birth control pill usually contains either one of two hormones or a combination of so estrogen and progesterone is what used uh, there's a lot of data on, on estrogen. Estrogen is uh, something that we would consider prothrombotic or something that can predispose uh, or increase your risk of stroke. Uh, earlier on, about 15 years ago or so, even more, the, the doses of estrogen in those pills was relatively high. So about 100, I think, uh, micrograms or something. Um, and now it's less than 50. In fact, there's something called low-dose and ultra-low-dose combinations where it's only 10 or 20. Usually, a fifty fifty micrograms or below is is acceptable in regards to stroke risk. It's been a topic that's been extensively studied over the past ten years. Uh, progesterone is not uh, believed to be associated with increased stroke risk, and in fact, a lot of women are on the progesterone only uh, pills. But just to come back to Tony, the question about aspirin, so and personalized medicine, sure. this ties in very nicely. Let's say we have a woman who has migraine headaches with aura, meaning has migraines and has the typical, you know, uh, warning signs with the dark spots or the flashing lights or all that type of thing, So they have, a, and they have a known history of migraine with aura. Um, if you're going to gonna take estrogen-containing pills, actually the recommendations and the guidelines are to take aspirin. Okay. Because migraine and aura plus estrogen increases your risk of stroke. Wow. Louise, thank you for the
0: call. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Next, we have Gene from Harrington. Gene, you had a question about stroke.
1: Yes, good morning. How are you today?
2: Doing great. Excellent.
1: Okay, I am a stroke victim. It's been, uh, oh, it's been three years ago now, and I had a stroke that was um, an aneurysm in my brain, and it affected my left side, my left arm and my left leg. Now, they tell me that the more time goes by, the less chance that I'll get any better. Is that true?
0: What do you think, Omri?
2: So uh Gene, nice to nice to meet from you. I'm glad to hear your your uh you survived that. Um and uh barely, yeah, barely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Uh typically the, everybody's different. I mean there's uh something called neuroplasticity and you know, usually the first year is where if you look at everybody, the the progress is, is most in regards to recovery. Was that what you experienced too in the first well, year?
1: I, I went I was nine months in a nursing home and I they see. got me uh, they actually got me back up and walking again. Oh congratulations. You know, I walk with a walker and Great. I spend a lot of time in a wheelchair, but uh, my my left arm is I can move it, but it's as far as functioning it's it's of no value.
0: Yeah, the key item really is is getting up and walking, right? Yeah. Because we know that people who are sitting for extended periods of time uh, carry a higher risk. So uh, Gene, the best thing you're able to do, the biggest step they made in your rehab, was getting you walking again, even with assistance. Um, so I, I think my advice at this point would be to just keep walking and keep the rehab going, um, because that is going to be a plus overall in your recovery.
1: Okay. Hey. All right. I, I am. I, I walk. I, they fitted me with a brace on my leg, which helps. Yep. Absolutely. And I can walk if I if I have someone to hang on to. I can walk on my own.
0: That's great. And do it.
1: But, you know, it's yeah, I can walk with a walker, but it's got to be good ground.
0: Do it, just it's
1: got to be level. But, is, is, but I just was curious if I'm if I can look forward to any good recovery or not.
0: Um, I think that the issue really is uh maintaining as best you can, okay? Because the more sedate you come, you know, the people start saying, you know, sitting is the new smoking, okay? And okay. you got to get up and, and move, and as long as you're moving. You may see some improvement, but the goal here is not to lose any ground. Correct. And I think you're doing all the right stuff, Gene. Keep well, up the good so, work.
1: So far, I'm, I'm I'm managing it okay. It's not easy, but I'm doing it.
0: Keep it up, buddy.
2: Thank you. All right. Thank you.
0: All um, right. Let's uh, talk about pregnancy, okay? Pregnancy and stroke. Because let's face it, uh, you know, me, uh, from a general neurology standpoint, when you see a pregnant woman come through the door, you're just like shaking your head because you know that they are vulnerable to so many things neurologically. Of course, and and fortunately, there are people like you that I could refer them
2: to. But <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, pregnancy is uh, is something that puts a, a strain on on a woman's body from so many different perspectives—physical, mental, but also physiologically. Everything changes, um, and because of the hormonal changes, you know, the the, the chances of having stroke do go up. Um, the blood becomes more thick and, uh, you know, women are at risk of having clots in the veins even of the brain too, not just in the in, in the arteries. Um, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we do see women who come in with maybe a, the worst headache of, of their life during pregnancy and it's a venous clot in the veins. It's just because the blood is so thick and takes a long time to circulate. Uh, so, and that's compounded by, you know, vomiting and, and dehydration and things like that. So, um, I think, that, I think that women who are pregnant should keep themselves hydrated, of course, for so many reasons, but the stroke risk does go up, Tony.
0: So after a stroke, Gene yeah. so brought the topic up. You know, it used to be that you had a stroke, you had a stroke, and I'm old enough to remember that, okay? You yeah. had a stroke, there was nothing to do. Yeah. But you mentioned neuroplasticity, and we'd be remiss to not talk a little bit about the rehab and what to do and and how important that is.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, it used to be like that, and in the past few years, I would say I'm I'm lucky in my life to see the advances. You know, somebody now who has a blockage in their artery, if they come to the hospital, uh, they could potentially get a procedure up to 24 hours from symptom onset based on their, you know, profile. If they have a lot of brain tissue to save, um, and a small amount of stroke that happened, then they could be somebody who could get a procedure done, and, and we do that at Hartford, we do that well, um, and they, they have a much better outcome. In the past, folks like that would come in and unfortunately you know, have a devastating outcome. Specifically to rehab, early rehab, aggressive rehab, in the first three months is key. Um, there's a lot of new technologies that have been assisting with rehab, such as walk devices and other devices that can help with the hand function. And I would say the first three months up to six months is, is really key. Focusing on not being depressed is important during the rehab function, uh, rehab time, uh, and keeping your moods up. We see folks who are with a positive attitude tend to even recover more physically better. It does something to their brain. It really does, Tony. It changes the way their, sure. their brain responds. Is it hard? I mean,
0: I, I get the impression that we have a real shortage of good rehab. In terms of, I mean, some people go to a nursing home. Sure. When you look at uh, acute rehab, such as at Hartford Hospital over in Conklin, yeah. I mean, th- it's a 24 7 deal. Right. 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 I mean, you don't see that in every facility, and yet it's so important. How do we get around that?
2: You know, that's a, it's always a challenge, and, and, um, sometimes, the, the what really dictates that is not the patient or the doctor. Sometimes it's, it's, it's insurance, it's things like that, unfortunately. Uh, but not everybody does benefit from acute rehab. I mean, sometimes you're, the deficit is so disabling that folks can't participate in rehab. So it's, it's sort of a balance, you know, to try to figure out who could benefit most and really push and advocate for them to get into acute rehab because you get much more intense therapy you get several hours a week versus one or two a week if you're in a nursing home.
0: You know, it's just so important to get somebody back to things that are productive. And I keep going back to my experience in Haiti where, you know, we have some rehab at our hospital, but it's really the family. I mean, the yeah. family's there 24-7. I don't think people understand in, in this country that in foreign countries, uh, th- there's nobody there to feed the patient. Right. I mean, it's, it's the family that's there and actually doing the physical therapy, the range of motion and things such as that. So uh, maybe we're getting back to that, and maybe families are going to get a little bit more involved in rehab. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back with Dr. Amre New. We're going to talk about predictive statistics in stroke. Let's try and figure out who's going to have a stroke before they have it, and let's see what we could do to avoid it. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we are in our final segment uh, with my guest, Dr. Omre Nu. Omre, let's talk a little bit about predictive statistics. You gave a grand rounds at Hartford Hospital, and it it was impressive in terms of the next phase of stroke care and medical care. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners?
2: Yeah, thank you, Tony. So going back to the eighty percent of stroke risk factors being known um but but you know how many times have you Tony seen someone who had a stroke and comes to you and you say well you gotta take care of your blood pressure and you you know these these and this and, but they don't have half the things that they that people have and you we have no idea why they had a stroke or they they have so many things going on you don't know what to what to look at first so you know the world has changed and Machine learning and AI is really replacing some of the modern things that we rely on every day to to predict things and, you know, there's airports run every day. The planes are, if they're delayed, it doesn't stop the entire line, you know, things are predicted, the weather. Uh, even fashion industries are using AI to predict what's going to be in style, how long something should be on the shelves and take it out and things like that. So. Um, why can't we take that into medicine? Why can't we use AI in medicine? So when we let's
0: explain AI because when we think most people think of AI, we think of a giant computer yeah. telling us what to do. No, but that's not the case. So Correct. Why don't you? Because your grand rounds explained that to me. So. Yeah.
2: So I went on an enlightening journey a couple years ago, got myself immersed in some of what that is, and it's not anything like the movies. <laughs> Basically, right. what it is, it's math. It's just really good math using machines computer science to predict outcomes based on equations to look at what factors or what are the things that can influence something and run a model and figure out what are those things that can give us the outcome we're looking for. And you can train the model over and over and over, and then basically it can figure out to a high degree of accuracy, uh, based on what you feed it, what the, the outcome would be. And that's exactly what AI is. There's nothing... Uh, it, you know, humans have to control that. You, you control what goes into it and you're, you're the one who sets it up. So it's not really a machine telling us what to do. So how does that apply to stroke? So when you look at stroke, remember for folks, uh, the Framingham study, for example, which was, you know, town of Framingham many years ago, um, the, you know, they looked at was it 1950s? I think it started in the 50s. 50s. Yeah, and and uh, the, that was the first cohort where the uh, two thirds of the population of Framingham were in a, in this largest epidemiologic study ever. You know, pop, population based, and they followed them for years, years and years, and then they followed the offspring in the in the 70s, looking at all their risk factors and all their genes. And out of that study, over 2,500 publications and came out of it, and some of the most uh you know interesting discoveries in medicine we used to call high blood pressure if you remember essential hypertension like everybody's gonna have that because it's essential but we figured out for the framingham study that that's not the case Um, so in the framingham data when you look at that they found that patients who had strokes had several risk factors so they went back and found what they were they created uh, a risk source gratification said you know if you have for example, high blood pressure that gives you a point. If you're a smoker, that's a point. If your age is X, that's a point. You add those points, and it gives you a 10-year risk of about 10%. But that that is a very generalized overstatement. We know for a fact that there's much more to it than just having or not having anything. And smoking for me or for you, Tony, may weigh heavily versus somebody else who doesn't smoke as much. So you can't you can't paint everything with the same brush. When you come to AI and you come to machine learning, what 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 AI does so much better than traditional models is look at everything, everything. It looks at all the data and and runs several different predictive analytic models to figure out what influences the outcome. And not only that, the interplay between different risk factors. So smoking on its own has carries weight, and hypertension on its own carries weight, but it's not a binary thing. It's not 1 plus 1 equals 2. Sometimes 1 plus 1 equals 3 because together they might have a more additive Destructive effect than not, so that's where machine learning has is 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 head over shoulders way above traditional models of figuring out what that is.
0: So, is the machine learning personalized or not? So, for example, yep, um, we know everybody here is Sorry, the guy smoked his whole life yep. and and never had anything wrong with him. Right. So obviously, it didn't play a big factor sure. because genetics are going to play a factor here, right? And in AI, that's got to be one of your variables, yeah. right? Yeah. So. When we talk about these AI models, are yep. they models for individuals or an entire population?
2: It's a model for an entire population. But the great thing, Tony, about it is, the, if you think about if you think about a tree, right? The root of the tree is sort of the most important thing. So I'll tell you for the study that we worked on, I personally worked on at Hartford with, with one of the you know most brilliant people who do AI in the world at MIT, uh, looked at the Framingham data and used that exact same data that they used and found that there was different branching points of the tree that would change depending on everybody's different risk factors. So, for example, if you had heart disease, that was the most important thing, yes or no. Let's say somebody has heart disease. The next step would be, for example, um, you know how high the blood pressure is. And if the blood pressure was high above 140, it will take you down a different path. If it was less than 140, the next most important thing in that profile would be something else. So it changes constantly depending on the absence or presence of a risk factor as compared to do you smoke, yes or no. Do you have high blood pressure, yes or no. Are you diabetic, yes or no. Then you just add the score at the end because your risk factor can go from having you know 5% chance of having a stroke in 10 years to 70% based on having a few Risk factors or absence of others. Do the scores work?
0: I, you know, I, we hear about all the different scores. Yep, and they're great for statistics and doing studies. But does it help with the individual patient in the
2: office? That's exactly what we're doing now. Um, so essentially, if today, Tony, you saw someone with 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 you know potential for stroke, and asked you, "Hey, doc, I have these risk factors. What's my risk of having a stroke?" You know, for example, atrial fibrillation. We know there's a chads vast score. You could tell them exactly right. what the risk would be. Uh, that's not personalized. It'll give you a ballpark estimate. Yep. But nobody waited for 30 years to validate that. Once the, once the score was out, people started using it and started to develop a treatment model for it, and that's, that's how we treat people with AFib. So th- same thing, Tony, for stroke. If somebody comes in and has these potential risk factors, you're a physician, primary care doc, and you're seeing folks – you could potentially follow those nodes of the tree down to the, and it's a very simple thing, down to the most personalized individual risk factor, and that would be the primary focus. So, for example, in the Framingham, you know, seven or eight risk factors were was what the model had found. And In the new AI model, we have 23 different patient profiles from the same exact data. From the same exact data, there's 23 different patient profiles because of the different ways those things work together. So... You know, we could focus personalized care and say, you know what, yes, you're high blood pressure and you have diabetes, but really looking at this tree here, smoking is what really tips you over. Yes, you got to take care of your blood pressure and yes, you got to take care of, you know, your your diabetes and that's something you're going to do for the rest of your life. But smoking becomes the most – I'm going to spend most of my time in my visit with my patient educating them that they have to quit smoking and not spend 80% of my time saying you got to take care of your blood pressure because in this circumstance, smoking is what's really going to get you
0: right um, this is amazing stuff because I think it really gives us a glimpse into the future. And, and it's important uh, for the, the work you're doing and looking at statistics and helping us keep the population healthy. Uh, for those of you interested in getting in touch with Dr. New, um, the phone number for the Iron Neuroscience Institute and the Stroke Center there is 860-972-3621. Omri, thank you. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for everything you do
2: uh, at Hartford Hospital. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tony.
0: Uh, Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Ockel has been on the board, as always. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, my guest is going to be Dr. Tanya Bilchik. We're talking about headache. Now, she comes on every year, but this is going to be a particularly interesting show because there are some unbelievably new medications out there for migraine that Do not have a lot of side effects and really get rid of it and you take it once a month. Unbelievable stuff. If you missed any part of today's show, Healthy Rounds podcast can be downloaded from iTunes. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.